Lord, thank you for today. We do pray that you will bless our time as we look into your word in regards to the future, the days that are coming, all that you have planned, and that, Lord, it would motivate, stir us uh, to live our life for you in a way that glorifies you. I pray that you would help me to make clear the truth in your word and that each of us would learn and grow because of this information. We love you very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, in case you weren't, didn't hear, there are uh, fill-in-the-blank syllabuses uh, back there in the back that uh, you can have this information if you like. And uh, I'd, if we run out, we'll make more. I wasn't sure how many would come. So the title of this class is Eschatology, and uh, we'll do, uh, be on that probably for a couple of months uh, and then we'll move on to another topic in the area of theology doctrines in the days ahead. We'll see uh, how much interest there is as I go through this, how much in depth I go, and we may skim through it and go fast or go slow. Because of the times, it's lots of interest. People are asking me regularly, do you think Jesus is coming? I say, yeah, I think probably before the end of the day. Uh, we'll see. And uh, it looks like it could be soon, and so we'll look at a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, way back in 1970, I had been married for one year. I was on the dairy, uh, on the process of becoming the uh, most successful dairy farmer in the world. And uh, I was given a book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, by Hal Lindsey was uh, published uh, in 1970. I didn't know if you knew that. And I got that book and I read it. And then I read it again, and I read it again, and it, uh, I hadn't ever heard a whole lot. Uh, the church we grew up in, I don't remember having heard any sermons in the area of prophecy. And so it was all new information for me. And I just became incredibly interested in the whole topic of prophecy, end times, eschatology, from that one little book. And uh, it's still, uh, you can still buy it, it's still printed after all these years, uh, since 1970, what's that been? Uh, uh, 40 years, I see 70, I can do the math, 30 plus 20, that's 50, 50 years, yeah. Long time it's been out, you can still get it. And so it's one of the most printed books, uh, Christian books there is on the market, small book, and pretty basic, pretty thorough, and still uh, quite accurate in the sense of theology. But what it did for me is just lit a fire in me. And I started reading and studying the Bible thoroughly on that topic of prophecy. And uh, then if you remember, around 1987, there was a little pamphlet came out entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. And uh, I've been pastoring here uh, for about 12 years when that book came out, and I got it. And again, it sort of reignited reading all those reasons. And I got pretty excited about 1988. Uh, coming, I thought, oh, cool, Jesus is coming in 1988. And I started really getting motivated about uh, preaching, about pastoring, about living, because there was a lot of things I wanted to get done before 1988 happened, and I had to stand before Jesus. So I got incredibly motivated. One of the key things is Israel was born as a state in 48, and so they said a generation was 40 years, and so 88 was when it was going to happen. And some of you who were in the church back in 1988, remember we did a number of things. One of them was we got 88 people to read through the Bible uh, all the way through. We had a one-year Bible in 1988. We had about 100 people coming to church back then. And so getting 88 people to read was pretty good. And so I think we actually got 89 people to read the Bible all the way through in 1988. And 89, we started a big push on prayer ministry. And it was 
key year in our church. It was a key year in my life uh, in the sense of sort of really getting serious about uh, doing what God wanted us to do. So if you have your notes, that all is introduction. Number one, God has planned. We'll get that on there in a sec. God has planned out the future. He has planned out the future, and He has communicated some of those plans to us in the Bible. Now, maybe all of them. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see if, uh, how, what percentage of all His plans are written in the Bible, but a lot, a lot of them are there. there uh, we've got uh, what He is going to do in the future given to us, written to us in the Bible. We call it prophecy. About one-third of the Bible is information about the future. And so sometimes people will say, why spend so much time on prophecy? Well, one-third of the Bible is on prophecy. It must be important. And so if it's important, we want to study, study it and, and look at it. And so God has given us and told us what the future is about. And so uh, the person running the PowerPoint will bounce back and forth on the screen. Put that back up there, would you please? So you can get it. And then go back to the beginning in case they missed that part. There you go. If you missed something, and I don't want you to uh, uh, go home mad, just wa wave your hand and I'll, that'll get that because a lot of these will be in two parts and I'll go through it and you won't get it written down because you're slow and we'll go back and get it so that you don't go home cranky. Um, Psalms 33:11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans, the plans, the plans... Uh, of his heart, generation to generation. God makes plans, plans the future. I make plans, plan the future. Some of my plans happen. All of God's plans happen. Isaiah 25, 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And so God has written plans. He has made plans. Every detail of the future is all planned out, and he has given us that in his word in the form of what we would call prophecy. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. By the way, we're going to talk about uh, hermeneutics as we go through this because uh, your hermeneutics will determine what you end up with in the sense of uh, the facts in prophecy. Hermeneutics is how you interpret the Bible. So one of the rules of hermeneutics is you come up with the interpretation before you uh, make application. And there's always just one interpretation of any passage of Scripture, and there's many applications. And so one of the things you hear people, and I hear people, with this verse, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you. And we'll take that for me, personally. Now, you can do that. That's application. Now, this book by Jeremiah, this verse in Jeremiah was written to the nation of Israel. You, plural, you as a nation in the future. I planned out the future for you, nation of Israel. And so I read it and say, oh, God has planned my life. Now, he has. He has. But understand that this verse, as you apply it to you, is application. Uh, but interpretation is God has planned out the future for the nation of Israel. And so we take the fact that God plans, and then we make application to our own life. And so I throw that in there because we're going to talk about that a lot because a lot of 
problems arise from people taking passages of Scripture, not arriving at the one interpretation first before they make application, and then they come up with things that simply aren't true. Number two, the study and the information in the Bible about the future is called eschatology. It, this comes from a, a couple of Greek words, uh, last things and, uh, and logos uh, word, and so it's the study of God's word about last things, eschatology. So, if you don't learn anything else today, you've learned a new word, eschatology. If you can remember how to pronounce it, uh, you'll be cool, eschatology. Number three, the goal of the study is to determine what happens and when it happens and to put every event on a timeline. So way back when Patty and I were first married, uh, we, we lived up in Seattle for about three months, and uh, we went to a church that was just starting, and it was all young people like we were. We were in our early 20s, and uh, it was a pretty good group of people, and we used to have parties regularly, and we had a party, and one of the things they did at the party was they decided to have uh, everybody rank everybody in the group on the basis of their age. And so we all had a, there was a bunch of wooden blocks. They'd cut a bunch of wooden blocks up, and we put our name on the wooden blocks. Everybody had a block. There was about 20 in the party. And so I don't remember who was first, but they came up, and they put the blocks in order, oldest first, youngest last. Now, I don't know if you've ever ranked people's age when there's ladies in the group. you got to be careful. And so I knew uh, some things, being a young guy early, just married for less than a year, and so I put all the guys first and all the ladies last. <laughs> and anyway, we ranked and said, how close were you? And, and then every, each person doing, trying to figure out who was the oldest, who was youngest in the group. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take every event that's prophesied in the Bible, we're going to put it on a wooden block, and we're going to have you put them in order. What's the first thing that's going to happen? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? All the way to the last thing that happens. And if you uh, get it right, then you get an A for the class. If you get it wrong, you have to go through it again. Um, so, but that's the goal. Number four, the goal. That's why... The reason, the goal of studying eschatology is so that we have a sense of peace and security, knowing that God has everything under control. This has been a crazy year, most of you would agree, and sometimes it creates a high level of anxiety in us. One of the goals of studying eschatology is so that we understand that God is in control, He is in charge, and nothing happens outside of what He has planned. He never wrings His hand and says, oh man. Things have gotten away here. He is in control. He plans it all. He causes it all. Uh, he makes it happen. I, uh, when my kids were younger, I was a, a, a roller coaster. Uh, nobody could ride a roller coaster longer than I could without getting sick. And in fact, the kids, when we would take them to uh, various places where they had roller coasters, you'd go and you pay them something, and then you could ride the rides as much as you wanted. And so I'd challenge them, let's see, let's go on this roller coaster. The ones, you know, that go around in a circle, the ones that go in dark rooms, the ones that go up and then backwards again, the really wild, crazy ones. And I'd challenge them to a ride. I'd say, okay, let's see, we'll go on it once, and then we'll go on it twice, and we'll go on it three times. Let's see who can go on it the longest. And I would always kill them. I mean, I would, nobody could stay on a roller coaster as long as I could. And uh, I never worried about the thing wrecking because I looked and saw, yeah, there's tracks, there's wheels. It's built pretty good. It's going to be a wild ride. 
but I don't have to worry about it coming off the tracks and anything wrecking. Occasionally, I guess it does happen, but I never heard of it. Um, and so that's what the study of prophecy is supposed to do, is to give you the sense, yeah, let's have fun. Let's enjoy the ride. Let's enjoy the adventure. What's going to happen today? What's going to happen next week? It's all new and crazy. Cool. I can't wait to see what it is. God's in control. He's in charge. And nothing's going to happen outside of his will. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, through, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising and the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Does God do that? I cause well-being and I cause calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Somebody asked me, this virus, is this God's fault? I think so. Uh, all this stuff going on in this world is, I am the one who causes well-being and I create calamity. Uh, one of the things I remember about my dad is that when he laughed, nothing would come out. When he really got tickled about something, he would just shake. And there was no noise, just shake. And sometimes it was sort of painful, so he would sort of hold himself like this, and then he would shake. <laughs> and one of the things that would cause him to get himself in shake was a television program called Get Smart. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that program. Uh, Don Adams was the, th was the star of it. And it was just a, a crazy kind of a thing, but it was a, a spy thing. And there was these this part of the world that was bad that Get Smart and his partner were always dealing with, and they, call, they were called chaos. And it was spelled with a K, K-A-O-S. Interesting that, you know, if you read the, that word calamity right there, uh, it's basically chaos. And so God causes chaos. And uh, read the book of Revelation and see how much chaos is there, how much calamity is there. And he is in control. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things. Long past, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Uh, he's not predicting it, he's causing it. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, I will do it. I have planned it, I will do it. And so God has planned the future, every detail, the good and the bad, and he's recorded it in Scripture. And so we study that and figure out what it is that's going to happen and when. Why? Well, the first reason is so we have, would have security and be at peace in spite of what's happening. Second, number five, the goal of studying eschatology is to give us a sense of urgency as a witness for Jesus and as an influencer of others. <clears throat> so it's going to end and uh, those who are in will be in those who are out will be out those who are headed for eternity in heaven will those who are headed for an eternity in the lake of fire will many of those people we know 
our responsibility at this point to influence people, attract them to faith in Christ, most of us are not doing anything, doing very little to be a witness for Jesus, to influence people to faith in Christ. And the, the, the goal, one of the goals of prophecy is to motivate us, to give us a sense of urgency. I remember back when uh, there were 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. I wrote a big, long list of names of people that I knew that I was, lived next door to, I was related to, and I began regularly sending them handwritten notes. Um, I would find all kinds of reasons to send a note to them. And then uh, I would invite them to church. I'd send stuff to them. I'd send books to them. I did as much as I just did a ton of stuff because I was so f worried that Jesus was indeed coming and they were going to get left out. <clears throat> I have a car. It's a Kia Rio. The only car, I think, in our married life, 50 years that we bought that was brand new. And uh, it's got 240,000 miles on it right now. So it's been, a, been you know, so it's a good car. We get 40 miles to the gallon with it. And I've never really done anything to it. And so I'm thinking that that car is like the best car ever built, and it's infinite. It will keep on, I'll get a million miles and it'll still be going strong. Do you think? No, I don't think. I fully expect it's going to blow up any day. <laughs> Why? Cars wear out. I'm 72 in a couple of weeks and I just am, I'm not even close to what I used to be. I'm wearing out. I'm trying to slow it down, but it doesn't matter. I'm still wearing out. And one of these days, I'm going to die and go to heaven. That's just the way it is. You get uh, old and you wear out and you get tired and you start getting aches and pains. I wear out. My car wears out. This building's wearing. Everything wears out. The whole world wears out. Did you know that this world is a finite thing that it's just getting old and it's going to wear out and someday God's going to make a brand new world? Uh, I told somebody the other day, I actually listened to a sermon that John MacArthur did on this topic. Uh, it was a great, great sermon. Uh, the world is wearing out. It's getting older, and it's going to end, and all the stuff that we try to do to make it last forever won't work. It's just designed to wear out. That's the way it is. And uh, things are coming to an end. Prophecy tells us that. There's the date that's going to happen. And so it's designed to make us do something. Uh, the finish line is coming, especially when it comes to people. John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, Jesus speaking here, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. You know what's going to be embarrassing? Is get to the end of my life and see all that I could have done that God gave me to do that I didn't even close, come close to doing. Man, that's going to be terrible. And so I don't want that to happen. And like everything crossed off the list that he put on my list. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. That means I get to go to heaven. To die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I've got more time, that means fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. Every time I read that, I've memorized this passage, I think, man, I... I didn't know we got to choose. Maybe Paul was one of those special guys. God said, you want to stick around a while longer? You want to go home? Uh, 
if he asked me that question, I'd say, well, I think I'll come. I'll leave Raymond to fix doing anything you wanted me to do. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that's so much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul was motivated. He had people he wanted to change. He wanted people he wanted to save to make disciples. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So our, our goal for prophecy is to give us a sense of security and peace uh, to give us a sense of urgency about people around us that need Jesus. And number six, the goal of studying pro uh, eschatology is to give us a sense of urgency and fear about what we will experience at the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> so I've been pastoring 44 years now, and certain things just irritate me. Uh, not irritate, frustrate. They're just sort of those things that just bug me. And one of them is, is there is such an incredible lack of fear in the average Christian. Now, I'm not talking about fear of COVID. I'm not talking about fear of, of roller coasters. I'm talking about the fear of the Lord. Over a hundred references in the Bible to fearing the Lord, fearing God. That's a lot. And those who do, it says there are great benefits and blessings that come into their life. Uh, those who fear the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Uh, and, and there's just tons of blessings that come into the life of those who fear God. What does that mean? People, you know, they say, well, you know, it doesn't really mean to be afraid of God. It means to respect all kinds of explanations. People will ask me, what is it? I read that verse about fearing God. What's that mean? I said it means to fear God. Uh, in one sense, it means that he is the judge and we will stand before him and give an account of our life. Uh, and so we have made grace the whole thing. And grace is critically important. It's great. But that doesn't mean that we just basically say, Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. Cool, I'm in. And, and no big deal. Uh, we have been given responsibility. We have been called. We have been uh, placed into ministry. We have a life to live, and we will stand at the feet of Jesus at the throne of Christ at the end of our life and give an account of our life and be re rewarded, recompensed for the deeds we've done in the body, whether good or bad. There will be some significant consequences for many at the end of their life. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ is important. The average person hardly ever thinks about it. So when I think about, oh, I wonder if Jesus is going to come tonight. Oh, Lord, could you wait another week? i got so much more to do. Oh, I don't want to hear you say, oh, you should have done this. So we tend to think, yeah, there's no consequences, no judgment, nothing. We're saved by grace. Everything is cool. Luke 12, 35, be dressed in readiness. Be dressed, that means put on some clothes. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for the master when he returns. And waiting for the master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed, blessed, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert, on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve Huh. 
He will serve me. Maybe if I'm in that group. To serve and have them recline at the table and we'll come up and wait on them. That's Jesus. Wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, finds them so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So, why? If I've trusted Jesus as my Savior and I'm in, looks like I can just go fishing and uh, have a great time. Just wait till he comes and I get ushered into heaven. What's the purpose of being on the alert for being ready, uh, being uh, a, a watchman? Matthew 25, 1, then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy, began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. He answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So we're going to get into this a little bit, but the question, were the foolish ones, uh, are they in hell? Will they be in the lake of fire forever? If that's true, then their salvation Nothing in that whole passage about faith. Nothing in that whole passage about grace. Uh, what is the consequence there for not being ready? Now, I would suggest to you that it isn't loss of salvation, that this is a uh, saved group as we are, but at the judgment seat of Christ, there is a consequence. There's reward and there's loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, and they lost some significant rewards uh, because of not being ready. We'll talk about what those are uh, in a little bit. Matthew 25, 14, 40, it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. He went on a journey. This is Jesus. He's in heaven. Uh, we've been given talents, some five, some two, some one, each of us. Immediately the one who had received the five went and traded with them, gained five more of the same manner. The one who had received the two gained two more. The one who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, hid his money, master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came as Jesus comes back, settled accounts with them. That's the judgment seat of Christ. The one who had received the five talents came up, brought the five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents. 
See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Wouldn't that be cool to hear that? And the one with two, same thing. You entrusted two talents. I gained two more. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. One who had the, received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where I, you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. I was afraid. Oh, I don't know how many times I hear people say that. I was afraid, afraid of failing. And I went away, hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master answered, said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. So, uh, is that going to be enjoyable to hear that from Jesus on the day he returns? You wicked, lazy slave. Many will. It doesn't mean they're lost, but it does mean the judgment seat of Christ is a very real event in every one of our lives. And we will all stand before Christ and give an account of our life and be rewarded, recompensed for the deeds we've done, whether good or bad. And the day that he returns is supposed to create in us this sense of urgency. Uh, boy, I want to do well. I want to hear him say, well done. Not you lazy slave. And so it's not just to, you know, make us knowledgeable about events is not just to satisfy curiosity. The purpose of this study is to motivate us, to stir us up, to set us on fire, to get us excited about doing something with our life that will show up at the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's the thing that I say to myself every morning today. I want to do those things that last I want to do those things that will be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ. I want to do those things that Jesus will give me eternal rewards for. I don't want to waste my life. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds. Prepare your minds for action. For action. Prepare your minds for doing something. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus comes back. Fix your eyes on the finish line. And prepare your minds. Keep sober in spirit. As obedient children do, not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, impartially judges, impartially judges. You know what the fear of the Lord is? Is recognizing that God is judged and that I will stand before Him and give an account of my life. Impartially judges according to each man's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, sometimes people will say, that's fear stuff. That's in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament. This is Peter. This is right at the end of the New Testament. If you address his father, say, God, you are my father. I believe in you. If you do that, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. So, is salvation free? 
It is. No works required. We're not talking about getting into heaven. We're in heaven. We're in there. We're in heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We're adopted as a son of God. But as a child of God, we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We will be rewarded, recompensed for what we've done in our life. And he says, live your life in fear. Not fear of hell, fear of loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Not many Christians have that. Not many believers have that. They don't like that. They like to have the feeling like, Everything's cool. It doesn't matter. Now, talking heaven, hell, that's true. I'm in. My sins are forgiven. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to give anything. All I have to do is believe and trust in Jesus, and I'm born again, adopted into the family of God. But as his child, God has called me to serve, to bear fruit, to be responsible, to do his work, and those who do will be rewarded, and those who don't uh, will not. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Matthew 16, 27, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. Will repay every man according to His deeds. That's not salvation. That's the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore being aware of being always of good courage, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. We prefer, we'd, man, I sure wish I'd get COVID. I'm 72, I'd probably die. Oh, wow, that'd be so cool. We prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's my ambition, to please Him in everything I do. For, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, I will, you will, every one of us, so that each one may be recompensed, recompensed. My grandkids come over to my house and work. Now, they get recompensed. The amount depends on whether I hired them or Patty hired them. <laughs> if I hire them, uh, I give them a buck fifty an hour. If Patty hires them, she gives them like twenty bucks an hour. And, uh, but they get recompensed. And I say, how many hours did you work? And I give them accordingly, as long as it was quality work. And so it says, we will be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 1 Corinthians 3.12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work, each man's work will become evident. The day will show it. The day, the day, that's the day we stand before Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our life. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer. Now, that's not bad stuff. It's just not eternal stuff. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. There'll be people that are saved, and everything they've done will be burned up. They'll have zero rewards, none. They're still saved. 
And we tend to think it doesn't make any difference. I don't care. The rewards are significant. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the Bible as much as they are to motivate us. They are significant. Uh, they are important. And to not uh, receive those rewards, I'll share what some of them are, and they are significant. First John 2, 28, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. Can you imagine Jesus coming and oh, not yet, shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Number seven, our goal in studying eschatology is to motivate us to press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. Maturity, that means to be like Jesus in character. To be like Jesus in character. So, Let's suppose we've got these little wooden blocks and our names are on it. Uh, and Jesus is going to take and put those in order. The one who is most like him in character, the one who is least like him in character, and put them in order. Our names are on it. How embarrassing is that going to be? So how close in character are you to him? And do you think about it, and does it matter? Does it motivate? Does it stir you at all? Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Why? What was God's purpose? What was his motive? Why did he choose to do that? Let's make man just like us. And the motive, I would guess you would agree, would be fellowship. He wanted to live with us, to talk with us, to fellowship with us for all of eternity. Number nine, you've heard me say this a bazillion times, but it'll be new for some of you. Who we are in character, the day we die or the day Jesus takes us to heaven is who we are. So we, it's amazing to me, we just tend to think that it doesn't matter when Jesus comes back what we are like in character because he's going to zappo fixo. It, there we are, just like him. You ever think that through? What does that do to life? What does that make life? It makes it just a farce, a joke. There's no purpose. Life has a purpose. He, it begins, we're saved, and life has a purpose. That purpose is that we would grow, become like Jesus in character as much as possible in the time we have left. He has provided everything so we can grow, we can end life, and be like Him in character. And when we are, we will enjoy His company. He will enjoy ours forever. But if we're not like Him because we're still babies immature, uh, there won't be near the relationship uh, in heaven Hebrews 6, 1, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Why? If he's going to fix those zap on me at the end of my life, there's no purpose and there's no reason. Cut that verse out of the Bible. Press on to maturity. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect. Perfect. That doesn't mean sinless. That means grown up like Jesus. 
complete. Rejoice when you have a trial because trials are designed by God to make you like Him in character. But I don't like trials. They're good for you. They make you like Jesus in character. Um, well, I'm I just going to wait and let him zappo fixo me at the end of my life. No trials for me. Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's not sinless. That's like him in character. That's the goal. Colossians 4, 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect. That is, you're like Jesus in character. Psalms 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We may present to you a heart of wisdom, a heart that is like you in character. Number 10, the purpose of life for us as believers is to make us as much like Jesus as possible purpose of life today, tomorrow, the next day, there's a purpose. God has a purpose. That purpose is to mold us and to shape us like clay into His image, to be like Him in character. We can cooperate with what He does or we can fuss and, and complain and grumble about what He does and negate the whole thing. But the fact is God wants us to grow to become as much like Him as is possible when we get to the end of our life because who we are is who we are. Life has a purpose and He isn't going to usurp that purpose and bypass that purpose because we don't get it. You don't want to get to the end of your life and be a baby. You want to get to the end of your life and be like Jesus because then you will fellowship with Him and you will enjoy Him for all of eternity. Number 10, the purpose of life for us as believers is to make as much, to be as much like Jesus as possible. The more like Him we are, the more we will enjoy Him and the more He will enjoy us. Now, I don't want anybody to take this personal, but some of you I enjoy fishing with more than others. any number of reasons, but it's mostly because you like to fish. If you like to fish, I like to fish. We enjoy fishing together. If you don't like to fish, going fishing with you is sort of a drag. And or if you, yeah, you're, you're into knitting or quilting. I'm not into that. If you are, that's what you talk about, I, you know, I'm probably not going to go fishing with you. Doesn't. I mean, I don't like you. I'm just not going to go fishing with you. I just enjoy certain people's company more than others. That's the way it is. I married my wife. The reason I married her is because I was pretty sure I would enjoy her more than any other woman on the planet Earth. So far, I've been right. <laughs> Getting close to the end, I think maybe I'll be right all the way to the end. Uh, so I want Jesus to enjoy my company. I want him to like me, to be around me, to talk with me, to fellowship with me. Those who are like him, he will enjoy, and I will enjoy. Those who are not like him in character, I mean, I like my little grandkids, but I don't take them fishing. I like them, I love them, but, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I give them back to Grandma. There's just too much gap between us. Uh, you know, they're my kids, and I love them, and they're great, and they're awesome, but, man... Uh, 15 minutes, I'm wore out. I'll give them to Grandma. I don't enjoy their company for very long. 
Not because they're not my grandkids, not because I don't love them, simply because they're not like me. And we want to enjoy Jesus, and he wants to enjoy us, and so it depends. How much like him are you? Life has a purpose. Life has a purpose to make us and to shape us and to mold us in the image of Christ. Most believers are wasting their entire life. They grow little because they think that it doesn't matter. They're just going to get to the end of their life and zap all fix uh, That's not going to happen. Uh, that's not going to happen. Philippians chapter 3, this is a great passage. I've memorized this, uh, and I meditate on it regularly. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he's writing this, Paul, obviously as a believer, planted churches, planted the church at Philippi, writing a letter back to them for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things, everything in life to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Him, that's an intimate relationship with Him. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That righteousness is not necessarily in the sense of what we would call doing good deeds. It's a character. It's who we are on the inside. Pastor Mike has talked about our sin nature. When we become a believer, then we are able to grow into the image of Christ and we become like Him, uh, that righteousness which comes from the basis of faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Whoa! That I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it. Wait a minute. Paul's a believer here. He's a church planner here. He's a pastor here. He writes the Bible here. He says, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you were to do this, read this in the Greek, you'll discover that the word here for resurrection is not the normal word. Uh, it's like super-resurrection. Uh, it's a special place. And uh, read the letters to the seven churches, those who overcome. They get a special place in their relationship with Jesus in heaven for all of eternity. He says, not that I have already obtained it. At this point, Paul wasn't confident that he was there. He hoped he had more time, or I've already become perfect, perfect, perfect. That is like Jesus in character. I press on. Well, Paul, don't you know that God's just going to zapple fixo us? Why press on? I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He laid hold of me for a reason, that I might become like him. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. That is, becoming like Jesus. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? Press on for the prize, the reward. Number 11, the Greek word for resurrection is different than the normal word. It literally means extra resurrection, above resurrection, or super resurrection. 
So you could do a study. Right hand of Christ. Just do a study on that phrase. Right hand of Christ. So the question is, I'm a believer in Jesus, you're a believer in Jesus, so we're all going to sit at the right hand of Christ. And the answer to that is no. At the right hand of Christ is a reward for those who are like him and have been faithful and served him well. It's a reward uh, for those who overcome, those who live a life uh, devoted to him, bearing fruit. Twelve, the Greek word for the prize is used twice in the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. I press on toward the prize. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Another passage would be great to memorize this. Don't you know, when Paul says that, that means this is super important. Don't you know that those who run in a race all run only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Win. What are you winning? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. We an imperishable, imperishable, eternal, lasts forever. The prize is in heaven. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to you, I won't be disqualified, disqualified from the prize. What's the prize? Sitting at the right hand of Jesus, being in that special place where he serves and waits on us, where we have intimate fellowship with him for all of eternity. Uh, one of the losses that some will experience at the judgment seat of Christ because the works are burned up is they're not included in that special group at the right hand of Christ that live with him in intimacy forever. I had somebody say, you know, I just love Jesus. Cool, if you love Jesus, don't you want to be near him forever? Just treading water for your whole life and doing nothing for him that matters. That's not loving Jesus. Uh, loving Jesus is you want to know Him. Paul said, I consider everything in life to be garbage in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And forgetting everything else, I press on towards this one thing. <clears throat> Number 13, there are many rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, but the one that motivated Paul the most was being at the right hand of Jesus for all of eternity. Don't you know that everybody runs the race? Run it to win. Uh, that means you get the prize of being with Jesus. Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, and that's not a salvation experience. Overcomes is the Greek word nikeo, where we get the word Nike. It means to be a conqueror, to be a winner, to overcome, to make it to the top of the mountain, to finish the race. That's not salvation. 
He who overcomes, that means some will, some won't. He who overcomes, will, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, question. Jesus is coming in 15 minutes. You're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. How are you going to do? How are you going to do? And some of you are thinking, man, I wish I hadn't come to this class. This is going to wreck my whole day. I mean, it's, sorry about that, but it's better to have it wrecked for just a little bit of time than forever. I mean, you don't want to get to the judgment seat of Christ and say, whoa, I didn't know this was happening. Um, 14, most followers of Jesus are not very motivated by the judgment seat of Christ. We tend to think of this life only, and we don't set our minds on the next. That's why you study prophecy, to motivate. It's coming. The end is coming. Jesus is coming. We're going to stand and give an account of our life and be rewarded, recompense for the deeds we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the things above. That means focus on the finish line. I don't run without aim. I don't boxes of beating the air. 15. Our presence in heaven, our salvation from hell is by grace alone. By faith, we believe the gospel to be true and follow Jesus and are saved. So we're always separating those passages that say, serve, work, be faithful, be overcomers, from those that say, believe and trust. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift. It is a gift. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then it goes on. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're uh, saved for good works. Uh, I'll say that again. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Okay, I was supposed to quit at 11.10, and it's 11.15. I broke the rule. Uh-oh, we better quit.